And welcome back. Graham Phillips with us. Graham, as you look at what has happened at Duggarland, is it a repeat here? Could it happen again? Well, as I mentioned, it, 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 it depends whether global warming is real or not. I mean, it's a very controversial subject. Sure. If it is real, then something similar could happen. Um, if it's not real, then presumably it won't. But, but look at it this way. At the time that these civili- early civilizations were getting going, it's around about uh, 12,000 years ago, when the ice started to retreat. I mean, the ice age had been with us for uh, many, many, uh, from about around uh, 100,000 years, which had meant that uh, early humans had remained mainly in the tropics and in warmer places. Um, once the ice started melting, I mean, some of the, the, the people just think maybe there's a little bit of snow and ice around. I mean, on <laughs> top of Britain, for example, all the way down to the very south of the country and in, in North America, as far down as the Great Lakes, there was something like two miles thick of ice, two miles. High. I mean, That's right. It's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. And, and, and the Average uh, average depth of the of, of the seas was something like 400 feet lower than it is today. I mean, I can't see anything like that ever happening, not in the foreseeable future anyway. But it was the melting of the ice. For some reason, the the ice melted. Now, again, people have, don't really know why it got warmer. Some scientists believe it's a slight change in the Earth's axis or uh, others believe it might have been volcanic activity, but whatever it happened, the Earth started to heat up. And before that, um, just as it started, but it didn't heat up suddenly, let's say overnight, and it didn't heat up at a gradual um, same temperature. It kind of went in sort of fits and starts. So for the first period of a thousand or so years, when the um, the sea levels started to rise, they kind of stopped. So. Because a lot of the ice had disappeared from places like Britain and North and most of North America, um, it meant that people were able to. Before that, they'd been a, most people had been hunter gatherers, but this started what is known as the agricultural revolution. People suddenly were able to settle in villages, um, and they were able to grow crops. People hadn't been growing crops before there. then. They'd been mainly nomadic. And when they started to do this, some early um, civilizations grew up. And when I say civilizations, I'm not talking about something that was like ancient Rome or Greece. Um, I'm talking about communities in which there are maybe more than a 1,000 people. There's um, areas which are, let's say, ruled over by the same group of people, larger areas rather than just wandering tribes. And these people had some pretty unique um, uh, skills. They, they were able to start smelting soft metals like uh, gold and silver and particularly copper, which they were able to make some rather interesting um, utensils from, like needles for sewing and um, and that sort of thing, they started to make pottery. So this, although it might not seem a lot by today's standards, these people were very advanced compared to anything that had gone before. But once they got started, some of these, civiliz- these early civilizations 
did survive, like in higher elevations, for example, Jericho in what is now um, the Palestine area, um, you've got places like um, the Gebekli Tepe, which is quite famous now. That, that got going and didn't sink below the waves. But many of these places, like cities today, were founded as, uh, as for uh, places where they could go out and fish and travel easily on the water. So there were coastal or low-lying towns and cities and it was them that got flooded at the end of the first wave of proto-civilizations. And it wasn't until some centuries later that the next lot of civilization got going again and, and had a better chance. Graham, in your investigations and in your work, uh, did you come across any stories about the Hindu text on Vamata's flying machines? Yeah, what, what is fascinating is that Various cultures throughout the world have got their, um, got their stories of ancient disasters. There's, there's flood myths all around the world, in India, in China, the Mayans. They've all got their flood myths. They're known by different names. There are different sunken continents or sunken islands. Um, for example, Atlantis, which was spoken about by Plato and the Greeks and recorded apparently by the Egyptians. Um, that was somewhere at the um, at, at, at where the Atlantic meets the Mediterranean. The Mayans had talked about a place which was along the uh, Pacific coast of southern Mexico. In India, you've got it, a lot of tales that seem to be set around the the River Ganges and also the river system of the Indus, which is now in what's Pakistan. Um, and here. They don't just, a lot of these myths don't just talk about flooding. They talk about um, people being warned by a god or gods that appear in flying machines like the ones you mentioned, or in other cases like in the Bible, God or an angel warns various people. In the case of Noah, God speaks to him directly and tells him to build a boat. Um, I'm sure that what actually happened was a lot more complicated than this, but people were certainly believing that they had been, in, had been warned of these coming disasters by people that do sound very much as though they are capable of flight. Um, make of it what you will, but that's absolutely right. That that's, was written about thousands of years ago. Let's go to the phones. Let's start with Daniel in Florida, east of the Rockies. Daniel, take it away. Hi there, George, and salutations. Thank you, uh, Dan. I'd like to start by the thanking you for your attention to detail and your uh, mediation in journalism uh, should be awarded. Thank uh, you. Uh, second, your comments about the media being seemingly coercioned today rather than just news. And I think desalinization is very valid for water, and that's an important issue, like the fishbowl effect. You can only have so many fish or so many pistons in an engine before the coolant system needs to be Going. That's right. Um, and Graham, thanks for your, yes. your field of research. I appreciated hearing about that, uh, the Holy Grail theory. And th there's a statue it made me think of called the Secret, and it's down in the um, it's in the a theater, the Cologne Theater in Buenos Aires. And I wonder if there might be something inside that. <laughs> Very. I cool. have heard about that. What exactly is it a statue of? Um, it's a child whispering into its mother's ear, and en route from, I forget where it came from, it broke the hand off, and they decided not to repair it. 
Um, it sits on the second floor up in the aristocratic level, gold leaf uh, painted Cologne Theater on uh, Nueva de Julio, the largest avenue in the world. And it's called The Secret. It's a, a statue. So the Secret is like that refers to the child whispering to the mother, I assume. That's probably why it's called yes. that, is it? And is this child supposed to be Jesus with Mary, or...? Um, I, don't, I don't think it's known who precisely it is, but it does have implications, being that the secret, what if there was more of a secret inside the secret? Like, oh, I see what you mean. And so the hand, you say the hand got broken off? One of the hands, yeah, was broken in transit when it was being shipped over, over the, the waterways, and the hand is missing still. They decided not to try to repair it, that it was part of the character and the real story and history of it. Um, All the secrets you know, in Buenos Aires, you say? Yeah, Buenos, Buenos Aires on Nueva de Julio in the Cologne Theater where they host shows and you can take tours and sit in the back and listen to a pin drop on the stage. But when I visited, they were doing lighting and or practicing getting the stage ready. But you can sit and take the tour and sit where the old ancient oligarchs and Kings and you see where Pavarotti sang and where the people threw tomatoes from the fourth deck and where the widow's column was near the stage in the front. They were hidden. They couldn't show their faces. A lot of history underground. They built every costume and all the wardrobes for every act that there was. A lot of interesting little tiles on the floor, the way they cut each little one and made a mosaic of the floor. And we're talking billions of tiles that they individually cut, little micro-inch tiles all over the floor, fanned out. Um, but, yeah, the secret. How, when did they build this? In the 19th century or something? Um, probably, probably, yeah. It possibly could be. They do have a lot of old churches and cathedrals that are even more brilliant than the churches there and just monolithic stone, last forever type of structures. And it's interesting wow. how that is something for history to leave something behind that can go for a long time and outlive the, the record of things that are susceptible to erosion or damage. So something new for you to investigate, Graham. Yeah, I, I, I will look into that one. Thank you for that. By the way, the cover of your book, The Mystery of Dogerland, what are we looking at? Stonehenge? Is that what that is? No, it isn't. That is this um, one of the oldest stone circles, which is actually on the Isles of the Isles of Orkney, which are just north of Scotland. And it was there that the people who built Stonehenge, the, known as the megalithic civilization, it's where they, where the, until they found these um, stone circles at the bottom of the sea, that's where the oldest stone circles were. It was always thought in the past that um, the stone circle building people of Britain, the megalithic people who built these huge stone circles and many other kind of mon monuments like huge great 300 foot mounds of earth with nothing inside them at all no burial chambers and nothing um built these huge mounds they created huge earthworks built stone circles uh, i mean people know of stonehenge but it's by far it's nowhere near the biggest i mean stonehenge is 100 feet in diameter there's another one 20 miles to the north of stonehenge which is called avebury that's a thousand feet in diameter, made up of about was originally a hundred stones weighing up to forty tons, massive earthworks around it, and these megalithic complexes were built all over Britain. And it was originally thought that the idea had come over from northern France. But the monuments in northern France are very different. Yes, they did build stone monuments, 
but they were not the same megalithic civilization that were building them in Britain. That started on the Orkney Isles to the north of Scotland and then moved south. Eventually, over a few hundred years, they built Stonehenge. So how come it just starts on this island? And what's fascinating is the picture on the cover is called the Ring of Brodgar. I think it's the third biggest stone circle in the British Isles. It's much bigger than Stonehenge. Um, and what, it's, th that was built, and, the, and the, suddenly this civilization, if you like, the megalithic people, started on these islands just north of Britain, fully formed. They, were, they had sophisticated pottery, they had sophisticated metalworking techniques like copper working, as I described earlier, but, but there is no evidence of them there having developed this over many hundreds of years. It has to have been developed somewhere, so it clearly didn't start there. And as there's nothing in Scandinavia or elsewhere on mainland Europe which is similar, then the likelihood is that they started somewhere which is no longer in existence. In other words, Doggerland, or the land that existed to the northeast of the British Isles before it sank below the waves. So that particular picture is one of the oldest stone circles, one of the biggest on the Orkney Isles in a place called Mainland. Let's go to Mary in New Jersey. Go ahead, Mayor. How are you, everybody? Um, I have a question. I um, guess you've got to use your imagination. But if our Earth was not located right here with, with the sun and the moon, and uh, it was another location, and something, oh, really hit it really hard, and it went flying off, and eventually the sun, the moon, our sun and moon caught it. But how cold is it out there? Could that have caused the ice age? Like it, it was came out of another location and it got whacked and it went flying in another direction. And eventually our sun and moon caught hold of it. It was just flying. Would that cause an ice age? It would, it would probably kill everybody at the same time. The, the thing about being hit right. by something, there's part of what you say which actually might be correct. Part of it which possibly isn't, the bit that isn't to start off with is if something hit the earth hard enough and big enough and moving fast enough to move it out of its orbit, it would create such a colossal explosion that it would literally, be no, no, nothing could live on the earth. That's as, what, as far as physicists are concerned. They've actually seen um, comets, fairly small ones, less than a mile wide, crashing into uh, the planet Jupiter and leaving Earth-sized kind of craters, if you like, in the atmosphere. Not craters as such, but Earth-like scar sized scars. And the Earth wouldn't stand a chance. But the fact that the Earth may have been moved, may have somehow got slightly closer or further away from the Sun, is a very uh, serious theory that scientists are considering about how the Ice Age happened. The only thing is, they're not quite sure what could have moved the Earth. Um, but there are many things that are really strange, though, are coincidences that some people may think, well, that's a bit of it. It's almost like a sign from aliens. And that is, no other planet in our solar system has got a moon that does eclipses. There's hundreds of moons around lots of different planets. But from the Earth, when you see the moon, it is virtually exactly the same size in the sky, appears to be, as the sun. 
which is why we can have eclipses. Yep. And if the moon wasn't in that exact position it's in, the Earth's orbit wouldn't, at least um, the Earth's uh, axis, wouldn't be stable enough, probably, for there ever to be any complex life existing in the first place. And the moon itself only came into existence, and this is what geologists think now, because something the size of Mars did crash into Earth before there was life here, flung up this huge great blob of molten stuff that turned into the Earth, uh, to turn into the moon. If that hadn't happened, there probably would be no life here at all. That's a good point. Let's go to John in Florida before the break. Go ahead, John. Hi, I thank you for taking my call. I, I, I've got an object that um, my grandfather knew Alexander Crowley, for real Alistair Crowley. Yeah. And actually, George actually had him up in Detroit at one time. I don't know if you know that or not, because he wanted I, I had to, heard um, that. I had heard that. Yeah, he wanted to go ahead and, and be a 32nd degree Mason instantly, which my grandfather was. So he took him back to Toledo, and that's what they did. But before he died, my grandfather went over there to see him. And Crowley gave him this this lid that's engraved in Qualum Zanny with the wall of Persepolis that has Toth putting the, you know, Darius and Toth fighting. It's, it's a piece of artwork with a disc, a solid brass disc with 32 rays on a stand. I believe they burnt incense on it. I'll get to the end real quick. I had it. You know, a long time. My wife hated it. I threw it away 30 years ago. Well, 10 years ago, we moved, and it's in a box, okay? And how in the world it got in a box? So I'll get to the end of the story. She doesn't want it. I sold it to some guy from OTO out of St. Petersburg, and he pulls up in this, you know, this white cloth with chain. I didn't let him in the house, you know. He's got a robe on. He paid me quite a bit for it. Two weeks later, he comes back. See him come in. He says, I don't want to ever see this thing again. <laughs> I'd like to know what it is. It's never given me any problems, but it's just, I, I have no idea. I mean, I know it belonged to Crowley. I know he had to burn incense on it. And when you see it, you're going to say, what in the world is this? Is there any way that um, Graham would know anything about that? Or I'm not sure. Graham, do you know anything about evil artifacts? Um no, really, um, when anything I've been looking for are all biblical things or things that are supposed to be good. Um, though, however, the very first book I ever wrote of, uh, was called The Green Stone, which was about a stone that seemed to have a curse on it because we uh, worked for a magazine called Strange Phenomena. I was the editor. We, 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 we got all to this stone. I won't go into the details, but when it was brought back to the... Um, the offices of the magazine, light started fusing. That reminds me of a Ouija board. Graham, we got to hit this break. We'll come back and wrap things up with you. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie along with Graham Phillips as we wrap things up. Graham, what's your next project? What are you working on now? <laughs> I'm taking a bit of a rest. I may go back to searching for the Ark of the Covenant Um I wrote um, a book called The uh, Templars and the Ark of the Covenant some years back, and um, I, I did a lot of, uh, I've uncovered a lot of information about where they are. One of those two arcs I was mentioning earlier may have ended up, um, and there is some evidence that a group of Knights Templars brought it back to Britain and hid it somewhere, so I may continue to investigate that. Well, good for you. You do a great job investigating with what you do. You know that. 
we got to get you back to talk about your uh, Lost Tomb of King Arthur. That was a great book you wrote back in 2016. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, King Arthur is probably the mystery I've investigated more than any other. And um, I I do believe that I have managed to locate his tomb. And it's a case now of persuading the archaeologists. Archaeologists have actually looked there. They've done some ground-scanning radar, and they know there's something there that that could be a tomb of a person that lived when Arthur is said to have lived. All I've got to do now is to persuade them to dig. Could be dramatic indeed. But, Graham, uh, thank you for being on the program. Keep in touch, and let's get you back again. Now, for some people, by the way, demons and entities are a problem. If you need a clearing, there's no better one than the spiritual warrior Bill Bean, who will be one of our guests in our live show in Columbus on October 14th. Bill, let's talk about that other case of possession that uh, is in the book, uh, The Connection, if you would, please. Absolutely. And, George, I'd like to, if we have a moment after that, I'd like to mention uh, briefly a couple recent ones that I feel you would probably be very interested sure. in hearing about. Absolutely. Uh, but let me speak about this really quickly. Um, this one took place on March 31st, 2018, in Orlando, Florida. And uh, I arrived at the home, and, you know, George, usually I can feel, and again, I don't claim to be anything, but God does give me a knowing of things. He has bestowed gifts, I'll say it that way, upon me. And I could sense evil right away, you know, pulling up and getting out of the, the rental car. And um, as I'm walking up the walkway, you know, I could I could sense it. I could feel evil present. And the uh, it, it was a very nice family, and, and the the lady of the house was the one being affected. And she too had some suffering in her childhood, and she was exposed to. Uh, Santeria, mm-hmm. Santeria uh, curses, which is, you know, it's like a Caribbean voodoo. And so she had exposure to that and was victimized by that as a child. And so she had been having on and off bouts of what she believed was demonic possession over the years. I think it was just a, a strong oppression that eventually did turn into a possession, and I didn't even think that until it was time to perform the deliverance. So I'm sitting there with her and her husband, very nice ladies, very nice man. Uh, met the kids; everything seemed well between all of them. We're talking, um, and the more we talked, the closer it was getting to the time at hand of the deliverance. Hmm. So I asked her husband to go up and, and fill the tub that I was going to ask her to stand in the water. I was going to bless the water first. I was going to ask her to stand in that water, and I was going to perform the deliverance over her while she was standing in that blessed holy water. So everything was going according to plan until we got into the bathroom. When it was time for her, after I said the prayer, and I could notice when we were going up the steps, her body language, you know, she was changing, that she was becoming nervous and apprehensive. And, you know, and again, you think, okay, well, this person's going to be a little nervous. I mean, something like this is about to happen. You know, they're going to be disturbed by it. So I'm blessing the water, and now it's time for her to get in. 
and all of a sudden, George, it takes her over, and it becomes a physical struggle. And her husband, he was right there, and he did assist me. He stayed right there with me, and we had to physically subdue her and get her into the uh, tub. And my goodness, was it ever a struggle. Same thing, spitting on me, trying to bite me. Cursing. Her eyes changed to black. Um, there were voices coming out of her, and she, her tongue looked like a, it was like a serpent. It was coming out and going all over the place. I, it was just unfathomable. And then she started, it, it wasn't her, it was those demonic uh, entities mm-hmm. in her. They were screeching and screaming. I can't believe that the neighbors didn't call the police. That's how loud this Jeez. was. And so, again, I had to be unwavering in you know what God was having me to do. And I continued, even with that screeching, and I continued to take power and authority over it every time I did that. It would stop, and then it would start back up again. So this was a battle back and forth for quite a while. And uh, to make a long story short, God did work through me to deliver her from it. And when she was delivered, she vomited everywhere. And that happens sometimes, George. She comes up through the mouth like that. And uh, after that happened, she was delivered. And then, you know, God bless her husband. He cleaned all of that up, and we had to put fresh water in there, and I re-blessed the water and then baptized her in that, and she's been great ever since, thank God. But let me tell you, I will never, ever forget that day. And it seems like she was calm, and then something really kicked her into high gear. What would have done that? I think what it was is the entities knew it was time for eviction. Aha. Uh-huh. So when okay. it's time for eviction, you know, they're going to hold on and fight with everything that they have because they don't want to go. They were fighting you. Have, yes. They have a host body, and that's what they want. And when they could get into a person like that and have that level of control, they don't want to go anywhere. So I am definitely, you know, a mortal enemy to these demonic forces, and again, it's by the power of God that I'm even still alive, George, because I believe that if if the devil would have had his way, he'd have killed me a long oh, time see, ago, that's by the power of God, I'm still alive. That's what I asked you, if you've ever been attacked or hurt. You've been yeah. very fortunate. Yes, absolutely. Can we, can, can we say ahead. you were lucky? Well, I, I would say blessed. Uh, you know, I'm definitely under... God's full blessing, and and I am not perfect. I don't claim to be perfect. I try to do the best that I could do and be the best that I could be each and every day of my life because I have to be somebody to and for somebody every day of my life. So I can't let down. And so I thank God and praise God for that. Um, And I will say this as well, that my life is 50 times more blessed than it's ever been cursed. And I could never thank God and praise God enough for that. Let's talk about a couple other little cases you had mentioned. Then we'll get into the Mandela effect, and then we'll take calls with you, Bill. What okay. uh, What other cases um, did you happen to have? I want to talk with you about something that took place on November 18th, this uh, 2018. And uh, your webmaster has it posted on the Coast to Coast site, a couple of those photographs. And this took place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this took place uh, at the home of a family that I had 
already helped. I'd previously been there. I love them dearly. They're they're like family to me now, and and I feel that way about all my clients. I you know after this is over with, I try to be there for them and do anything that I can for them, and and always be there and somebody that could comfort them and help them to move forward. So, this is Anita Tetzel and her son Chris Levis. Um, great people. Anyway, they started having problems again, and they asked if I could come back, which I did. And again, I sensed the presence of evil when I entered into the home, really walking up the walkway as well, but I entered in. Now, usually, George, I would never ask someone to do this uh, because most people, they don't want to document. They don't want to take photographs. They don't want video. They're very embarrassed and ashamed by it. They don't want people to know it. But on this occasion, I felt that God was urging me to say to Chris, I want you to stand behind me as I'm going through this house. And they'd have, they had had severe demonic problems in the past that God worked through me to deliver them mm-hmm. and to get rid of the garbage out of the home. And somehow it would come back in. And so I asked Chris, I said, I want you to walk behind me as I'm going through the house. And just take random photographs. I really believe that you're going to capture some things in these photographs. And so, sure enough, he captured many images, uh, two that I believe to be divine angels, and then the rest I I believe to be demonic. And uh, one in particular, which is on your Coast to Coast website, was this face. And I mean, it's very clear. It's very clearly uh, defined. It looks like a demonic entity, and if you look closer at it, it looks like fangs. Oh, it's horrible looking. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, out of the right side of the mouth. And um, so this was in the basement of the home. It looks like Frankenstein, the face, doesn't it? Exactly, George. Exactly. And I mean, that's one of the most defined pictures that I've ever seen of what I believe to be a demon. And so I was drawn over to the uh, chimney area, and part of that house was built in the 1800s. And there was like a little potbelly stove uh, connected to this this chimney area down in the basement, and it was a block wall. And I felt that there was a portal there. So this is something that I didn't discuss with you earlier that I should have, is that not only you know, do I have to, by the power of God, bind and rebuke and cast out demonic forces, but I also have to close the portals as well, because there are portals everywhere. That's not easy. Travel. No, it's not. And and so I'm standing there in front of this block wall where God had led me to, where I believed a large portal was, and I'm binding and rebuking it, closing the portal. And as I'm doing this, George, just as you're hearing my voice now, this groan, growl type of thing came out from within the block wall. Anita and Chris were standing right there with me. We all heard it clearly. And so after hearing that, I had to jump right back into action and take power and authority and bind and rebuke it, cast out, and then it departed. But it was, again, something that you and the uh, listeners, you'd have to be there to see it and hear it for yourself to truly understand and appreciate what I'm saying. 
Let's take a few calls here for you, Bill, and we'll come back and talk more about these events and the Mandela effect as well. Let's go to Colleen in Red Bluff, California, to get things started. Hi, Colleen. Hi, George. Thank you. I think for taking my call. I'm actually kind of really nervous. Um, I was married for a long time to an abusive man, and there were many times, just to cut it short, abuse verbally, physically, mentally, whatever, and sexually. And um, I can distinctly remember at least three or four times where I saw the face of Satan while he would be raping me and choking me, and I would have fought him off physically as hard as I could, and I was strong back then, and I mean, I would be sweating just out of energy trying to fight him off, and um, I just, I feel like I've been stuck, and I don't know if there's residual effects from that or whatever, but I know. I know Do you I know feel possessed? I don't know if I feel possessed, because I've done, I mean, I've single mom, four kids, raised them all, worked hard. And, and where is he? Know. He's done. He's gone, right? He died, yeah. He oh, died he died. Three, yeah, about three and a half years ago. But, I mean, I, we were divorced a long, long time ago. But, you know, I mean, God has been amazing in, in letting me raise my kids and everything that we went through. I mean, just the host of things. But, um, personally, I just feel like i just not worthy. I don't know. I... I well, let's bring the expert in to talk with you. Bill, go ahead. And I'm very sorry that you've suffered in the way that you have. And I want you to know that God does love you, and God is with you, and God is for you. And I think it's time for you to start a new chapter, a new season in your life, making God first in your life and have a real connection with him and allow him to show you that you are somebody and you are worthy. So I would suggest to you that, and whether it's me or somebody else, find someone to help you with this type of spiritual, and this would be more of a spiritual cleansing for you. And I would also recommend that you'd be rebaptized as well and start a new chapter and a new season in peace, freedom, and victory. I want you to look forward and never look back. And you can get a hold of Bill through his website, Colleen, billbean.net, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. That's it. And, and God bless you. And if I can be of any assistance in any way, please, like George said, he just gave you the website. Don't hesitate. Let's go to Ed in uh, Hemp Hill, Texas. Ed, welcome to the program. George, it's such an honor to talk to you. Well, thank you, Ed. And Bill, when I was nine years old, my mother went to Kmart and bought a Ouija board. Oh, boy. Mm. Oh, boy. Uh, and, uh, she thought it was a game, uh, right? Thought it was a game, yeah. And my brother, me and my brother played it. He was three years old. And he was 12. And, uh, he died at 25 years old. Mm. Oh, my. And... Everybody in my family, except my father, he's 82, has died. I'm very sorry to hear that. You think a lot of it was tied to that Ouija board, Ed? I think everything was tied to it. Anything happened that you could recollect for us when you were playing it? And how many times did you and your brother uh, use the board? We'd mess with it every day. Every day. Oh, my gosh. Every day. It's a portal, Bill, isn't it? 
It sure is. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Ladasor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burroughs, Tim Banal, Ryan Stacy, Ian Punnett, and George Knapp. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.